the portion of Chayetzara. The portion of Chayetzara has two basic um, events occurring within it. The portion opens up with the death of Sarah, uh, the, uh, the burial arrangements that Avram proceeds to make, the intricate details of the acquisition of the Ma'arat HaMachpelah, that cherished and holy burial place that first man and his wife were buried and subsequently would become the family burial plot for the patriarchs and matriarchs. Um, how Avram is involved in a very intricate process th of the purchase of the field before the burial of Sarah and only after no loophole is left open that it is unequivocally his for all times is Sarah then eulogized and buried. This is one subject in the portion of Chayu Sarah. A second subject in the portion of Chayu Sarah is a subject of how Avram understands that it's high time that Yitzhak found a marriage partner. Avram himself is too old to go himself and to find that marriage partner sends his trusted son, trusted servant Eliezer to go and find that marriage partner and there are details exactly where Eliezer should go, what he should look for and Eliezer then proceeds to go and miraculously finds that which is the intended quote-unquote and brings Rivka back and it is then that Yitzhak has somewhat of a comfort and consolation for the loss of Sar which was discussed earlier in the portion. These are the two major subjects that are uh, discussed in the portion of Chayasar and they're both important to speak about. The first one is important to speak about because obviously we know it to be true in human nature uh, that very often we don't come to appreciate an individual until the individual is not here anymore. And uh, in a certain sense, this happens to us in, the, uh, in our knowledge of the matriarch Sarah. We talk a lot about our patriarchs, Avram with his loving kindness, Yitzhak with his, with his discipline and self-control, Yaakov with his, his, with his uh, sense of truth and the beauty that emanates from that truth, and we always are talking about patriarchs, patriarchs, patriarchs. And we forget about the fact that the greatness of the patriarchs was only possible and only reached what it did reach was because behind a, every great man there's a great woman. And therefore it's very important to talk about who were the matriarchs, what did they stand for, what did they contribute. Let me make mention of the fact that we've discussed earlier that the book of Bracious is referred to as Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, and we pointed out that it's not called the book of creation merely because of the first chapter or two that discusses the physical creation of the world, but it is called the book of creation because virtually, not virtually, but literally everything that was done by uh, the patriarchs and the matriarchs in terms of how they came to the call of certain circumstances and how they addressed certain challenges and what they did and what they said. This all created a, the spiritual genes of what would then become the future potentials of Klau Yisrael, the future potentials of the Jewish people. So in that sense, creation didn't end with the physical creation being completed in the six days of creation and described in the first two chapters of Genesis, but actually there's a constant 
constant creative process which is occurring with every episode that the Torah felt was important to record for posterity. Each one of those episodes has to be understood and has to be analyzed in the sense that it established and it created a particular spiritual potential that then becomes an everlasting quality that the Jew possesses and can dip into and can access if he so desires. In that sense, the same way that we are behooved to find the creative nature of what Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov did in their lives, we have the same obligation to try to understand the creative process that Sarah, as a wife of Avram, was involved in it, so Rivka, the wife of Yitzhak, and so Rachel the wives of Yaakov. And because it's true that a marriage partner and how Eliezer went by it has many lessons in it, I think that um, for this evening we're going to discuss the concept of the matriarch, in particular the matriarch Sarah. And I'd like to present a number of questions. I'd like to present a number of questions uh, in, in trying to bring together some information about Sarah. The Torah says very little, bit, very little about Sarah. And almost everything that's said about Sarah is said in the details of how she's seen at her death and the eulogy of her death. It's interesting, I'd like to make mention of this, this isn't common knowledge, but we say the eulogy of Sarah every Friday night. The Eishas Chayil Miyimsa, the woman of valor, who can find oh, the woman of valor, and as the, the verses describe all of the virtues of the woman of valor, the Medrash tells us that the entire Eishas Chayil Avram himself composed much earlier than Solomon did in Proverbs, and that was the eulogy that he delivered at the funeral of his wife Sarah, the entire Ashes Chayil. In fact, in fact, there is a particular verse, those of you that are familiar with the Ashes Chayil know that the Ashes Chayil is, every verse is the beginning, begins with a word from another letter of the alphabet. It starts Eishas Chayel, which starts with the Aleph, and then goes through it. When you get to the letter Zion, when you get to the letter, that the seventh letter of the alphabet, the verse is Zamim Masadavatikachehu. She plotted and she thought and she was able to purchase the field, which refers to the fact that Sarah plotted for the purchase of Ma'arat Hamachpelah. That's what the verse means, and this immediately opens up. Uh, a, a question. Sarah did not plot for Marat HaMachpelah. If anybody worked through the necessary details of the Marat HaMachpelah, it was Avram, his, her husband, after her death. Nevertheless, Avram stands up at the funeral of his wife Sarah and says, you want to know who really got Marat HaMachpelah? It was Sarah. She plotted, she did what was necessary to get Marissa Bachmeir. It wasn't me. And obviously this opens up a very interesting question. What did Sarah do to get the Marissa Machpelah? Better yet, why is the burial plot, the Marissa Machpelah, such an important and such a central thing that one of the 
praises that Avram talks about in regards to Sarah's rich, righteous life is she plotted to get Maretz HaMachpelah. How? How and what's, the vir- and what's so virtuous about the plot to get Maretz HaMachpelah? This is something which has to be discussed. It's obvious. And we know that there was something very significant in this because Avram Avinu made sure in every way possible that the purchase was totally legal, totally ironclad, and did not do anything with Sarah in terms of her burial until that was all in place. It wasn't as if, let's tend to the dead first and then we'll take care of the details later. Avram said, no, that's not the way it can go. With Ma'ara Samachpela, it has to be fully mine before I proceed with the burial of Sarah. And the question is why? Right, this seems to be a technical question, but we'll see that it has tremendous relevance. Let's, let me, I'd like to share a, a whole group of things, a whole group of questions which, uh, which are significant in trying to understand who Sarah was. <coughs> First of all, we are told that Sarah lived a full life. She lived to the right age of 127, and the Torah says, Yodei Hashem Yemei The Medrash says God knows the pure and the full experiences of life that the righteous have. Zu, zu, Sarah, this is a reference to Sarah, that she was meant to live 127 years, and there wasn't a day in her life that was misused or wasted. So when she left the world, she left this world not with 127 minus some days that she goofed off or burnt up, but she left the world with the total experience of what life was supposed to be for her, which definitely means one thing, that she didn't die before her time. We know at the same time that Sarah died at a particular moment. Sarah died at the moment when she became knowledgeable of the fact that Avram was instructed to sacrifice Yitzhak, and she had found out the information that Avram did willingly go with Yitzhak to the sacrifice, didn't find out the results, but began to cry and left this world in tears. And here we have somewhat of a paradox. It almost seems that Sarah died unnaturally, or died in a way which is almost like a, a very sad end to a very full life. One would imagine that the, most, the, the, the best way for Sarah to have died was that she lay down in bed and she was very content with life and she said Shema Yisrael and she had a smile on her face and her eyes lifted to heaven and she left the world that way. Yedei Hashem Yemetim, she finished the life and she gave us all back to her master, to her creator. But that's not the scenario that paints itself out for us. The scenario that we're familiar with is that she has this this gripping knowledge of Avram and Yitzhak going to an ultimate test, she begins to weep and she begins to cry over the nature of that test, and her neshama is returned to its creator in that setting. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of that? To, to point, to, to indicate that this is not merely nitpicking because I have uh, something to say, you know, and therefore I'm creating a question for the sake of the answer. There's a verse at the beginning of Chayasar which says, Vayavay Avram, and Avram came. So the Gemara asks, Mehechamba, where, where, where was Avram coming for, from? So the Medrash says a peculiar answer. The Medrash says, Mimisase shall Terach. Avram was coming from the death of his father Terach. 
Now, Nachmanides mentions this Madrash, and Nachmanides questions that Terach died two years before. Right? So what does this mean that Avram was coming from the death of Terach? So the Madrash says another answer. The Madrash, besides saying this answer, the Madrash says that he was coming from the Akedah. He was coming from the, uh, from the sacrifice of, Avra, of Yitzhak, which was a test, as we learned last week. Nachmanides doesn't understand this Madrash either. Nachmanides says that Avram wasn't coming directly from the altar to the, to the, uh, to the funeral of Sarah. Avram had accomplished the, uh, the sacrifice of, of, of Isaac, the, t- the nature of the test, for whatever it was, and he then journeyed together with Yitzhak took Yitzhak off to Yeshiva and then went to Be'er Sheva. And he was really coming to, to the funeral of Sarah when he heard about the death of Sarah from Be'er Sheva, not from the Akedah. So Nachmanides raises an objection with both answers of the Medrash. Mehechem Bo, where was Avram coming from? Where was he coming from? So the two answers of the Medrash is, according to one opinion, that he was coming from the death of Terach. Nachmanides says that happened two years before. He certainly did something in those two years. Number two, he's coming from the, from the altar. He's coming from the sacrifice of Yitzchak. Nachmanides says that's also not true. He had returned to Be'er Sheva, and Yitzchak was off in Yeshiva already. Which is a very interesting medrash, by the way. Why did Yitzchak go off to Yeshiva after, the sa- after this tenth test? Avram and Yitzchak realized that the only strength that they had to be able to go through this test was by their connection to the appreciation of God's will. So they said, in, since we only gain this strength from understanding God's will, we have to constantly foster and nurture that appreciation. So Yitzhak went off to Yeshiva. He didn't take a Caribbean cruise for two months to get over the, the psychological and emotional strain of this spiritual test. He went on to the, next, to the next level of growth. He went off to Yeshiva. Okay. In any case, this is what the matter. But one thing is for, uh, one thing is for certain that all, for some reason the death of Terach and the, and the binding of Isaac are seen as being related to the funeral of Sarah by the Medrash. Nachmanides questions it. It's not true. Factually, chronologically, it's not true. But on a Medrashic level, the Medrash says that there was a connection between the death of Terach, the, the binding of Isaac, and the funeral, so to speak, that Avram was coming from one into the other. There is a connection there. What's the connection? <laughs> the Zohar asks a very in- now. The Zohar asks a very interesting question. The Zohar asks the following question: There were many virtuous women in the Bible and in the prophets. Nonetheless, there is no one that gets the time and space that Sari gets in the Chumash in the details of her burial. There's a long discussion about how Avram needs a burial plot and doesn't want to bury Sarah and the eulogy and so on and so forth by Avram, There were many, many great women that the Jewish people would not be able to live without. And nevertheless, their deaths are recorded in simple verses by Yamas, Vatamas Shamiriam, Vatamas Shamrivka, Rivka dies Miriam. The, door, the sister of Moshe and Aaron. We only had water in the desert for the 40 years in her merit. So she sustained, literally sustained, in the physical sense, she sustained the Jewish people for 40 years. 
And nevertheless, her death is recorded in one simple verse. Thomas Shemiriam. They mayim la'edah. She dies, and there's no water for the people. And there's a whole involved thing that transpires to bring the water back. But Sarah gets a lot of time. She gets a lot of space. The portion is called after her. Chaye Sarah. So the Zayir asks why. And the Zayir gives a very perplexing answer. The Zayir's answer to this is, begin. You know why Sarah is recorded in such length in the Torah? Because she went down to Mitzrayim, which refers to the episode that when Abraham came to Canaan, there was a famine, so he went down to Mitzrayim with Sarah. And Sarah went down to Mitzrayim and left Mitzrayim untainted by the, the moral or the immoral filth of Mitzrayim. And because she went down to Mitzrayim and came up from Mitzrayim, and she, nothing was attached to her, no dirt got attached to her from Mitzrayim, in the metaphorical sense, begin came for this reason, Zachsa, she was meritorious, which is in the Aramaic, to the most heightened state of spiritual life, law for herself, for her husband, Yes, her husband needed her for the epic in the spiritual state, or Lebnon Achrin, and for all of her descendants after her. This is what the Zohar says. Now, if I would have been the Zayir, I would have come up with a different answer. I would have said because she was a tremendous Balaschesed and a tremendous Balabasta, and because she was a greater prophet than Avram was. I mean, Sisfelt Nishtais, there's plenty to say about Sarah. So Zayir says, I'll tell you what the uniqueness of Sarah is. She went down to Mitzrayim and she came up from Mitzrayim. Nothing got attached to Sarah. I mean, it seems to be anticlimactic in the description of her virtuous woman. You say about a virtuous woman that she didn't become immoral. Thank you very much. That's her shrach. That's her, that's her praise. That's why the Torah dedicates so much time to her. What is that supposed to mean? Then there's seemingly a, a Zohar which is in contradiction to this Zohar, in, in conceptually in contradiction. The Zohar says, I want to explain to you the wisdom and the beauty of the match between Avram and Sarah. Because Avram represents and symbolizes the spiritual and the soul, Hasura, and Sarah was the guf. Sarah was the body. She was the physical presence in the, in the relationship. So Avram is, is Hatsura, and Sarah is Haguf. So no, you get you get uh, you get a Nisham and a Guf together. That's wonderful, right? That's what the that's what the Zayir says. Now this certainly is very difficult to understand. That's all the Zayir has to say for Sarah, that she represented the physical presence and the physical contribution in the relationship. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, this comes up in many different ways in describing Sarah after her death, we talk about her beauty, her physical beauty. When she was 20 years old, she had the innocence and the beauty on her face like a seven-year-old. Now, this that the Torah tells us, that when she was 100, she was as spiritually pure as when she was 20, that I understand. That should be written in anybody's obituary if they, if they, if they lived to be that. But after, when you're dealing with the burial of a person, you talk about how physically beautiful she was. Why is it relevant? 
Why is that important? I mean, I'm not saying that beauty isn't a significant thing, but certainly it doesn't play any kind of a role when the physical presence is not relevant anymore. But nevertheless, the little that the Torah tells us about says, I want you to know she was a raving beauty. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the arrangements for her funeral. What's this supposed to mean? Let's go a little bit further. There's an interesting madrash. There's a madrash which says about Sarah that Rebbe Kiva, who lived one generation after the destruction of the temple, was once saying a class, he was once saying a shir, and he had his disciples before him, and his disciples were drambling, they were falling asleep. They were falling asleep, and Rebbe Kiva thought to himself, I gotta discuss with them something that's gonna be so thought-provoking, so exciting, to get them back awake. You know, they gotta wake up. So Rabbi Kiva chose something which was very provocative. What did he choose? So he said, gave a bang on the table and said, listen, I got something wonderful to tell you. I want to tell you why Esther was meritorious to become a queen over 127 provinces. You want to know why? Because Sarah, who was her great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, lived 127 years. So don't you see the relationship? Because Sarah, her great-great-grandmother, lived to 127, so she, as a great-great-great-great-granddaughter, was a Malka over 127 provinces. Now, first of all, we have to know what this is supposed to mean. What's the relationship? It's very cute. It's, it works out beautiful, 127, 127. That's very nice. But what's the relationship? That's number one. Number two, personally speaking, I don't know what's so provocative about this. I don't know what, why the disciples would wake up because of this. I mean, what great message was there in what Rebbe Kiva said that Rebbe Kiva knew that this is how he was going to get his disciples out of their state of stupor? I mean, why? How? I mean, what, what's the significance of this statement? <coughs> Let's say one more thing. Avram desperately wanted Ma'aret HaMachpelah even before Sarah died. We know that. The Medrash says that Avram came upon the spirituality of Ma'aret HaMachpelah in events before Sarah's death. According to one version in the Medrash, he was going out into the fields to meditate and to pray, and he was looking for a place that would be opportune, and he came upon the Ma'ara Samachpeli, he entered the Ma'ara, not knowing what it was, right? but saw a divine light, <coughs> and then the soul of Adam said, what are you doing here? And he said that he was coming to pray, and so on and so forth, and Adam revealed to him that this was a haloed place of burial, and that this was in fact the place where there is a connection between this world and the world to come. And Avram made up then and there that this is where he wanted to be buried, and that the his, his children and his grandchildren should be buried there as well. So he knew about it, according to another version, he was once going out, he was running after an animal that he was going to later prepare for his guests. <coughs> and the animal constantly ran further and further away from him until the animal took him into Ma'ara Samachpelah. And there he found the divine light and the entire story which I just detailed transpired. There's a lot to, know, to understand of how Avram tripped upon the Maris HaMachpelah. 
and the difference between the two opinions. But I'm not going to get into that right now. But one way or the other, Avram wanted Maras HaMachpelah before. In Jewish tradition, it is not contrary to Jewish tradition. In fact, the tradition does speak about preparing a place for one's burial before death. Nevertheless, Avram doesn't do it before. Avram has to make a mad rush and get involved with, with lawyers and purchases after the death of Sarah. Why couldn't Avram do it before? And don't give me the answer, Avram wasn't an organized person, or Avram didn't have the time of day to do it. I mean, if Maratha Machpelah was a spiritually important place for them, Avram would have taken care of it. But for some reason, in the sequence of events, no, everything stops. The burial process halts, and Avram is going through this process. Now, we have a hint to the answer, because Avram says in the eulogy that it wasn't him that accomplished the Maras HaMachpelah, but it was Sarah. Which, but that leads us up, up, up a dead end, because we don't know what to do with that. What did Sarah do in regards to Maras HaMachpelah? What is that supposed to mean? All right, I think we, we dumped enough questions. Let's get some answers. <clears throat> and we have to listen to this concept very carefully. It's, it's somewhat of an involved concept, but it's a very essential concept in Yiddishkeit. It's a critical concept in how we understand our relationship to God and how we understand the unique contribution that men make to, the, to, to Judaism and the unique contribution that women make to Judaism. The bridge between man and God is, is, is built and traffic is created between man and God and God and man on the basis of two major qualities that the human being possesses. Those two qualities are the qualities of intellect and understanding, number one. Number two, emotion, feeling, depth of heart understanding, as opposed to logical intellectual understanding. In other words, there are two major areas. There is the area of conceptualizing God, understanding God, intellectual appreciation of God and His commandments. And then there is another whole area, not the head, not the brain, but the heart, <coughs> the lathe, the heart that throbs with emotions. That's an expression of the human personality and everything else. Which one is more important or which one is the most significant factor in our relationship with God? That question is as silly as the question of is the, bra is the person's brain more important to his physical existence or his heart more? You can't live without either one. Take a person's brain away from him, he can't function. Take his heart away even with the brain, he can't function. <coughs> you need both. And in the spiritual vein, it is identical. It is identical. One needs the intellectual connection, the conceptualization of God. We're going to learn a lot about that in the second class this evening. But it is also necessary to understand God emotionally, psychologically, through one's emotions, through one's heart. Both have to be developed. Now, this is not to say that it's an even, even deal, and every person is 50-50%. 50% intellect, 50% life. It's not that way. Every person is a different chemistry. 
with a larger proportion of intellect with a greater or a greater proportion of, of heart. They're different combinations. They're different combinations. But there is, on a philosophical level, a major difference between these two bridges, as significant as they both are. The bridge of intellect is a bridge which brings down into this world the lofty concepts of the essence of God. It's, it's grasping and trying to perceive concepts that are not bound to this world, that are not measured by the measurements of this world, that are not restricted by the associations of this world. It is taking, you'll excuse the expression, the values and the goals of outer space and bringing them into the realities of this world. And therefore, spiritually, it is referred to as lemala lemata. It is the function of bringing that which is exalted, lofty, great, and bringing it into this world. On the other hand, the function of heart, the function of emotion is a totally different bridge. The Shari, the Reb Chaim Vital, in his famous work, the Shari Kedusha, Reb Chaim Vital was a major disciple of the Ari, a great Kabbalist. And the Reb Chaim Vital explains that all human emotions and the developing personality of the human being are really sourced in the four major elements that comprise man. In Kabbalistic literature, there's a discussion that man is made out of four basic elements, which we have to understand, not so literally or scientifically, but it does mean it in an allegorical and somewhat of a metaphorical sense. The four basic elements, earth, fire, wind, and water, and everything in creation is, is built from these four elements, but there is a unique combination that creates man, and Reb Chaim Vital details how all of human emotions emanate from these dalajisodos. They all emanate from these four basic elements, the four basic elements of this physical world. Now, what we are then saying when we talk about a bridge of, uh, uh, between man and God through his heart, which means through all of his motions, emotions, what it essentially means is that all of the emotions that are based in the physicalness of this world and everything that emanates from this physical world in terms of, of the humanness of the, the human being can play a role to be channeled and directed into an intense and passionate relationship of feelings towards God. That's a different thing. That's not taking something up high and bringing it down into this world. It's the exact reverse. It's taking this world and taking its elements and elevating the humanness and the physicalness of this world towards God. That's the function of mimata limala. It's taking everything from this world down here and elevating it and integrating it by channeling it into emotions that, that show their intensity in a relationship towards God. Where does the difference come up? I'll tell you where the difference comes up. The Talmud, the Talmud talks about the unique difference between a Chacham and a Navi, a wise person and a prophet. The Talmud says that in a certain sense, Chacham Adas Navi, 
A wise person is greater than a prophet in a certain sense. Why? Because a chacham can deal with the abstract. He doesn't have to deal with the world and with the limitations of the associate. He can deal with concepts, with principles, with ideas. Ideas don't have to be necessarily grounded. You can conceive of something that doesn't necessarily have an association. Intellectually, you can perceive it. And in that sense, his, his insight or the depth of his understanding is superior to that of the prophet. On the other hand, the prophet has an advantage over the wise man. Why? Because while the wise man can conceptualize something, the conceptualization of it on an intellectual level doesn't necessarily require a total physical experience with the concept. On the other hand, the prophet, what happened to the prophet? When the prophet came into prophetic vision, into prophetic communication, it was because he had sanctified his body to the point that his body sensed and felt the presence of God and the message of God. This is why when you, we talk about the wise person, he sits down and he thinks and he's in concentration. Does he look like he's you losing human form? Does he look like he's spaced out? No, because it's really not encompassing his physical existence. It's an intellectual connection with God. The Navi, on the other hand, is Niskadish Kalevara. There's a sanctity that overtakes his whole physical being that puts him into, so to speak, a wavelength of recognizing the presence of God and the message of God. This is why Avram was a chacham. Avram was a tremendously wise person, a great philosopher, a great intellect. And he was able to write the principles of Judaism without a teacher and without Maimonides. But who was the greater prophet? Sarah was the greater prophet. Because Sarah came from the perspective of Lave. Sarah came from the perspective of taking everything from whence she came, all of her earthy elements, all of that, and raised it and channeled it through the channels of, of significant emotion in a relationship towards God. Being that this was so, she reached a level of her total being being sanctified being sanctified to the extent that she had a prophetic connection and vision that was even greater than Abraham. This is what the Zohar means when the Zohar says that Avram was the soul and Sarah was the body. It doesn't mean that, Sarah, that Avram was everything spiritual and that Avram was everything spiritual and Sarah was everything material. What it means is that Avram's connection was through soul, which means in this sense through intellect, and that was the bond with God, which was essentially a bond of lemala lemata, bringing the divine into this world, while Sarah's connection was total familiarity with every feeling with, and with every earthiness that she possessed, and how that can all be elevated and integrated and channeled towards God. That's the girl. In other words, she came to the challenge of bringing a oneness of body into, into the relationship with God. And that's what the Zohar is talking about. Now, once we understand this, everything falls into place. Everything falls into place. And let's start, let's start from the beginning. We pointed out, and we'll go through all of the questions, and then we'll see how this is relevant to us. 
We started out, <coughs> we started out by saying that Sarah lived a full life, and nevertheless her life ended on a very sad note. Her life ended on the sad note of her we of becoming knowledgeable of an ultimate test that Abraham and Isaac were involved in, and she wept when she became knowledgeable of that test, and in that, in that weeping, she passed away from this world. Not in an untimely death, but a timely death. And the question that we asked is, why, if she was dying a timely death, did it have to seemingly be marred with such an uh, unhappy kind of an end? And the answer is very simple. The answer is that when we talk about that ultimate test of Abraham with Isaac, that test was on two levels. It was on an intellectual level and it was on an emotional level. And let's explain. On an intellectual level, Abraham found God and found anything and everything that was valuable in life through his intellect. So when Abraham was fully accomplished in, in his recognition of God through intellect, God said there is one thing that still has to be accomplished because Abraham could conceivably be worshipping his intellect first and me second. Because after all, wasn't his intellect the vehicle that gave him everything in life? So it's conceivable that Abraham will attach such importance and such value to his intellect that he would not be prepared to give it up for the will of God. So therefore, after he fully used, utilized the intellect in the appropriate bridge between man and God, God said, okay, now let's see after he built the bridge if he's worshiping the bridge or if he's worshiping the destination to which the bridge will lead him. And he went to the Akeda with major philosophical questions and said, it doesn't really matter what my questions are. I have to listen to God. So there was definitely a philosophical uh, test that was the ultimate one, the philosophical test of no philosophy, uh, an ultimate test. But after everything is said and done, that's only half the story. There's another part to the story. The other part to the story was that there was a test of emotion. Because we know, as I pointed out last week, that Avram did not go to the drugstore and get a tranquilizer and sedate himself and Isaac before the binding of Isaac with the rationale, the main thing is to get it done. Abraham and Isaac knew that what God wanted was that as intense as my feelings are and as, as, and as committed as my heart is to the most valuable things in this world, the ultimate dedication of one's heart and one's feelings and one's emotions have to be towards God to the extent that if there is a contradiction between the two, one will be able to resolve the contradiction and say that my first allegiance in terms of my emotions is to God and not to man. So there was definitely an emotional test here. Where did Avram and Yitzchak get the ability to be able to withstand the emotional test of the, of the Akedah? Where did he get that? Where did he get that emotional ability from? Where did they get that strength from? The answer is simple. Avram got it and Yitzhak got it from Sarah. Because Sarah 
It wasn't only one event in Sarah's life that they went down to Egypt and she was placed into the house of, of Paro and she could have become the, the lady of the land. It wasn't one event. She, she was brought into Paro's house. She could have had the whole world in the palm of her hand and she said, no, I want to go back to that old, old man with the white beard of Rome and I'm not interested in all of the glory and all of the glitter of Egypt. You have to understand that if Sarah was able to go down, have, have all of the power of Egypt in the palm of her hand, and to go cold turkey on it, it wasn't that she reached that level there. It was because her home radiated the values of the spiritual and of the dedication of all of the emotions and all of the heart towards that which was meaningful. So then when she was presented with a test of this nature, the, 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 wha- how she had to decide it was very clear to her. It was because she, st- st- w- she stood for my heart. Yeah, sure, my wa- heart wants minks and my heart wants furs and my, wa- wa- my, my heart wants perfume and my heart wants a wardrobe of 300 dresses. My heart wants a whole world and I'm only using those things metaphorically. I'm only using those, but I'm talking about all of the desire that's so common to the physical world, whatever the, that world of desire is. And nevertheless, Sarah lay in bed in Paro's chambers and wept and said to God, Take me out of this dungeon, the dungeon of materialism, the dungeon that robs a person of all of his emotions to be directed in a positive direction. Get me out of this dungeon. Another person would have said, Dungeon? This is paradise. I have everything that I could possibly want here. Why should I go back to that, that old person that never gave me any minks, that never gave me anything of the, of the material world? He was, Avram was paying back chavis. He was in debt. He was paying back creditors. But what's the answer? The answer is that Sarah developed her whole heart, her whole life, that her heart shouldn't be taught in, in a million directions. She knew that her heart wanted one thing, and that one thing was important. She wasn't dancing at two different weddings. She was dancing at one wedding, the wedding to be married to God. So Avram understood, Avram understood that if I, I have the strength, and if Yitzhak has the strength to, to go through the binding of Isaac, yes, it's because I destroyed Terach. It's because I broke the idols of Terach. I destroyed that which would have threatened the intellectual perception of, of, of God. But there's another part to the story. Avram came to say a eulogy of Sarah. From where did, she, where did he get the insight to eulogize Sarah? So the Medrash says because he came from the Akedah. In the Akedah he saw the strength of his wife, Sarah. In the Akedah he came to realize uh, something about Sarah that he never really fully understood before. That a person can give one's entire heart to Hashem. That one can dedicate and not leave open in one's heart that which contradicts it. You know, we very often walk around with the notion that, you know, yes, I love God and I'm going to do what I want for God, but God, keep your nose out of my business when I'm having a good time. I like this also. You have to mix in everywhere. Right? And we talked a little bit about this attitude last week in the concept of wholehearted devotion. <clears throat> 
So when, when we see that Surah dies in the Akedah, Surah dies with the, with, the, uh, with the knowledge of the Akedah, and she weeps, and she dies at that moment, a timely death, you know what that means? What that means is that uh, Surah didn't leave this world until God confirms for her that she had accomplished her job of giving her heart totally to Hashem. And in the knowledge of realizing that she had prepared Avram and Yitzhak for a total dedication, not only intellectually, but emotionally towards God, she wept. The weep of victory, the weep of accomplishment, the weep, the weeping that expressed the total giving over of emotion. That was the confirmation of Sarah's life. It wasn't the denial of her life, but it was the confirmation of her life. It was a very emotional experience for Sarah to realize that, Avra, that God was prepared to test Avram and Yitzhak with such an emotional test. If God is testing Avram and Yitzhak with such an emotional test, it must be because God put that responsibility of the dedication of emotions in my role in the home. And having the knowledge that that was the nature of the test, that they, they would be tested, that was the confirmation. With this we understand why the Maris HaMachpela, why the, the, the burial plot is to Sarah's credit. The entire concept of giving respect to the physical presence of the deceased. The place, the, the, the entire concept of a family burial plot. What are all those concepts? The way somebody once put it to me, and I shared it, is, yes, I agree with you, Rabbi, the soul is divine, and the soul is great, and the soul is going to go to an afterlife, but when I die, why can't I just be deposited in a trash bin? What's that statement? What that statement is saying is, what's the significance of the physical? The physical is nothing. Well, the whole life of Sarah is the proclamation of the opposite. The whole life of Sarah proclaims that our being in this physical world is for the function of taking the physical world and everything that it pr produces in terms of emotions and desires and personality and so on and to ele in elevate it and integrate it into a meaningful relationship with God to the extent that when a person passes away from this world it's not only his soul that's divine but his physical body that was elevated and integrated in the spiritual pursuit is also divine today Maras HaMachpela becomes the, the reward of, of Sarah and Avram because of what Sarah contributed in the relationship. Sarah plotted her whole life. How can I purify my emotions that they should be totally dedicated to God? When did she plot for the Maras HaMachpela? Every time that she introspected on her emotions and dealt with the purity of her emotions, she was plotting for the, the Ma'aras HaMachpela. She was gaining her footage in the Ma'aras HaMachpela. Avram had a tremendous desire for the Ma'aras HaMachpela. Who wouldn't want to have the desire for the place in the world that is the connection between this world and the next world? But Avram didn't feel that he had anything to be meritorious of it. But after the Akedah, and after realizing 
what Sarah meant to him and to Yitzchak, then he felt confident that he could insist on all of the intricacy of an ironclad possession <coughs> of Ma'arat HaMachpelah. Zamu it's not mine. It's spiritually mine because of the contribution that Sarah made to my life and to my son's life. The notion that we might have, parenthetically, that, that the, uh, the father is the educator, the father is the knowledgeable person in the home, the mother provides the cereal, the oatmeal, the, the clothes, and so on and so forth, but it's the father that's responsible for the spirituality in the home is nonsense. The life of Yiddishkeit, the life of spirituality, throbs within the bloodstream of emotion, within the bloodstream of feelings, within the bloodstream of, of a relationship with God, a tzavsa, a friendship with God, a love with God. And the concept of Judaism being a loving relationship needs the mother figure needs the woman because she is the one that can contribute that kind of a contribution both to her husband that needs it and to her children that have to experience the blend of emotion and Judaism together and not mm -hmm. contrary to each other. <coughs> With this we understand very well why in the death of Sir we talk about her physical beauty. She was a raving beauty. According to certain, uh, according to certain mefarshim, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. No, what do you expect from the most beautiful woman in the world? To be married to somebody that has his nose in the books? To be married to somebody with some lofty spiritual values? Or to make the most of your beauty? Yes, the Torah says on her death that she was the most beautiful woman and that is a praise of her spirituality. That's a praise of her spirituality. <coughs> if one wants to know, what did Sarah create? What did Sarah create? Avram was a creator, Sarah was a creator. What did Sarah create? Sarah created, broke the barriers. A person sometimes says, I just have emotions, I just have desires, it's not possible for me to channel them correctly. I can't. So Tyra says, you have a mother, Sarah. And if you have a mother, Sarah, don't give me any baloney that you don't have. It doesn't mean it happens overnight. It doesn't mean that I just say, yes, I'm a, grand, a grandson or a granddaughter of Sarah, so therefore I can do it, and the next day I'm a tzaddik or a tzaddikus. It doesn't happen overnight. But the notion that it's not within me, my emotions are too strong, my desires are too passionate, and I can't. I, I have to have a piece of the action that's isolated from God and that cannot be elevated and integrated within a total spectrum of a spiritual existence. The Yitzira of Sarah, the creation of Sarah, says it's not so. It's not so. Now we understand very, very well the connection of Esther because Esther was put in the identical position as Sarah. Sarah was put into the position of having the whole world materialistically in her hands, and her attitude to, uh, to it was, get me out of this dungeon of materialism. Esther was the same. Esther was the same. Esther, right, Esther was put into a position that divine providence legalized her relationship with Ahasuerus. So she could have said, 
listen, God wants me here. There's no choice. I'm saving a people, so I might as well enjoy it at the same time. That's for a person whose heart is in the world. But for a person whose heart is not in the isolated materialism of the world, but in a relationship with God, I might be stuck into a position that is guided by the God, but nevertheless, my attitude is, get me out of this dungeon of materialism. And this was Esther. So Rebbe Kiva said very eloquently, Rebbe Kiva said very, very eloquently, why was Esther, why was Esther meritorious? To be on top of the physical world, to rule the physical world, because she was a true great-granddaughter of Sarah who ruled the physical world within herself first. That was Rebbe Kiva's message. Now, what was so profound about Rebbe Kiva's message that he thought that this would wake up the students? So listen carefully, because this is a, an amazing piece of information. <coughs> One of the verses in Ashes Chayel, which is the eulogy of Sarah, that's what Avram said by Sarah's funeral, are the words, the Lamed is la yichbe balayla neira. In the nighttime, the light doesn't go out, which really means that she worked into the wee hours of the morning. That's the literal definition. But it really has a deeper meaning. The deeper meaning that it has is the following. We said that there are two bridges to God. There's the bridge of intellect, and there's the bridge of emotions and feelings and understanding and the intuitive connection to God. So two. We have to realize that there come periods in our dark history, the Lila of history, the night of history, where our conceptualization and our intellectual bridges to God don't exist. It's too dark. There are too many questions to ask. And there are too few answers that are being given. If my relationship to God is based intellectually, God I got too many questions that need answers. I'll come back if I find the answers. The nature of Golus, the nature of exile, with all of the negativity that exists in exile, creates a tremendous darkening of the light of intellectualism in one's connection to God. Does that mean that the Jewish people's existence and their relationship to God is threatened? No. Because even if the intellect cannot understand and cannot unravel the deep questions of history and of Gullus, the Lila of history, the night of history, the heart which was developed by Sarah that knows God, loves God, wants God, is indestructible. The light of Sarah doesn't go out at night. The light of Avram could go out at night, but the light of Surah doesn't. History says testimony to this. How many thousands of Jews were there through history that believed nothing and knew nothing, but knew in their hearts that God was their father and that Judaism was their religion? Where did that come from? All the time we learned it came from the Akedah, but tonight we're learning that the Akedah itself came from Surah. It wasn't only from Avram. 
It came from Sarah too. So when we talk about intellect and emotion, there's one place where there's a drama of the superiority of emotion and the heart of the Jew and the creation of the heart of the Jew over the intellect of the Jew. And that's in the night of history, the night of exile. Now, Rebbe Kiva is sitting at the table and his disciples are sitting around the table and they're falling asleep. What that means metaphorically isn't that they just stayed up to three o'clock the next last night and the cheer was boring so they fell asleep. Misnamne means because it was after the destruction of the temple and they were falling asleep spiritually. They didn't have the perceptions intellectually anymore. Judaism was getting boring. They didn't have the same connections intellectually. The light of the temple had been extinguished and was gone already a generation. They're falling asleep. They're not being intellectually engaged to stay awake. So Rebbe Kiva says, even though you don't have the temple and you don't have the engagement of the intellectual light of the temple, but Madua Zachta Esther, why was Esther able to conquer the world? Why did she become the queen of 127 provinces? Because she was a great-granddaughter of Asara, because she was a creation of a heart that was dedicated to God. So your intellect, its levels of perception might be dormant, but the heart of the Jew is always awake and throbbing. Not necessarily knowledgeable to us, not completely knowledgeable to us, but it's alive and throbbing. And that's why Rebbe Kiva selected this particular thing as a message. You're falling asleep because you don't feel the intellectual uh, satisfaction of, of the light of the temple and everything that the temple meant. Don't forget that life is very, very full. Your great-great-grandchildren of Sarah, as Esther was a great-great-granddaughter of Sarah as well. So when it says that Avram came from the death of Terach and from the Akedah of Yitzhak, now we know what it means. It comes from both together. Now, <coughs> now we come back to the very, be- very beginning. So Zayar says, why was Sarah so special? Why was she so special? And it says, Zayir says, you know why she was so special? Because she went down to Mitzrayim and she came up from Mitzrayim and Layizdat Kispa and Mitzrayim, Egypt, didn't attach itself to her. This is what the Zohar says. Now let me explain what this means. Most of us walk around with an attitude. Most of us walk around with an attitude that the things that challenge our morality, the things that challenge our principles ethically and morally, we would be better without them. We would do better without them. And to a certain extent this is true because to the extent that we fail in the challenges, certainly if we wouldn't have had the challenge to begin with, we wouldn't have failed. But the Zohar is saying a very eloquent message here. The Zohar is saying is that, you know why Sarah reached where she reached? because she had a Mitzrayim in her life, because she had temptation in her life, because she was able to access the whole material world in her life. If she wouldn't have had the Mitzrayim experience, she wouldn't have been the great woman that she was. 
So rather than to see the challenges to our morality and, the, and to the principles of our living as the steps back in our spiritual development, the Zohar is saying quite to the contrary. The way we develop, the way we become, what we become is because each and every one of us is presented with our own personal Mitzrayim, our own personal thing that challenges our potentials and tries to be Mitzrayim, tries to contain them, tries to bound them up. And to the extent that there's a resistance to the actualization of our potentials, it's to that degree that if we come to the call, we become the great people that we're supposed to be. So the notion that we become holy people by rolling in snow and having living in ivory towers and meditating in the fields and spacing ourselves out of any contact with the physical world, the Zohar dashes this from our, from our perceptions. And the Zohar says, you want to know why Sarah became who she was? Because there was an episode in her diary of being in Mitzrayim. Because there was a Mitzrayim. Because there was a Mitzrayim, that's why she became what she became. Now, taking this into our own lives, there are most probably three critical elements that we can take from the relevancy of this story into our own lives. Number one, number one, that we shouldn't be view the challenges to our principles and our morality as contrary to our spiritual growth, but in fact the greatest opportunities for our growth. The Hasidic masters say that you know where holiness is, where there is the sense of danger and escape that a person wants from that which challenges his spirituality. That's what, and that's an attitude that we have to live with. The fact that we are presented with it, the fact that we have within our persona personalities leanings and tendencies towards it, don't worry about it. It's good. It's the Mitzrayim of your life that you can grow from as Sarah grew from the Mitzrayim of her life. What are you going to say? And this is, goes to concept number two in terms of modern day relevancy. What are you going to say that you don't have the ability to do it? Sarah is in the book of creation. You're a grandchild of Sarah. You have that ability spiritually to do it. That's number two. Number three... Okay, number three, and this is a final comment, number three is that we have to properly understand the woman's role in Judaism. The woman's role in Judaism is the role which guarantees the eternity of the Jewish people. The intellectual connections to God can go under tremendous fire in the darkness of history. What has preserved us up to this point and what will take us to meet Mashiach is the heart of Klal Yisrael. The heart of Klal Yisrael is the privilege and the responsibility of the mothers of Klal Yisrael. Intellectually, let me give you an example of this, which my brother will most probably share with you. Intellectually, when Paro when we were in the Gullus of Egypt, when Paro said that all children or all male children should, should be put to death because the savior of the Jewish people, astrologically it was figured out, would be in a certain period of time and Paro had no way of knowing who, so he said just total annihilation. 
of all male children that are born, be they Jewish or non-Jewish, because my astrologist didn't tell me if the Savior is going to be a Jew or not. So there was a feeling of birth control. There was a feeling of, of people splitting up, because why bring children into the world that would die? Who was it that didn't agree with it and made the statement that Paro is a wicked man and he's only human and he's limited in his abilities. But if you take heed of his threats, you are certainly giving him power and you are certainly guaranteeing that the Jewish people will die. Who made that statement? Miriam. Why? Because the intellect goes under very often because of the Tsaras of Gullus. The understanding and the connections intellectually don't, don't hold their strength and they don't hold their intensity. But the heart throbs with the love for Hashem. The heart throbs with the love for, for, the, for its people. The heart doesn't deal with all of the rationales. The heart knows something has to be done. And this is why the women dedicated themselves to making sure that family life would go on and that they multiplied and became the people that they had to be. It's very interesting that Moses, when he made the call, and this accentuates the point so vividly, it's unbelievable. When Moses made the call, everybody bring the resources for the tabernacle. Bring your resources to the tabernacle. So they brought the gold and the silver and the tapestries and everything else, and you know what the women brought? They brought mirrors. The mirrors that they stood in front to make themselves pretty for their husbands in Egypt. And Moses had a problem. Moses says, this is what we're going to put into the sanctuary? The mirror? The symbol of all vanity? And he questioned it. And God said to Moses, you better believe it, that it belongs in the sanctuary. It's those mirrors that made the people who they are. What is that supposed to mean? So on a simple level, it means that they made themselves appealing and it created the population that was necessary for us to become a nation and not to become destroyed and assimilated within, within Egyptian culture. But on a deeper level, what it says is that it's the understanding that the mirrors of materialism are also part of our bridges towards God that will make us survive in history. Not the divorce, not not running away, because that's not real. That's not real. The perception of denial of the physical world, denial of the physical world will lead us up no healthy avenues. We won't survive that way. The only way we can survive is with the realness of this physical world, but with understanding that the realness of this physical world can be elevated, can be integrated, and can blend into a tremendous holy mixture that preserves our identity as a people. Now, I was in a group two nights ago discussing this, not so explicitly, where everybody in the group, almost everybody was women, and there were two men in the group. And when I came to this discussion about the unique role that the woman has, the men were getting edgy in their seats. And I said, calm down, because as important as it is for a woman to know her contribution in Judaism, it's important for a man to know the superiority that the woman possesses in this area. Why? Because when you get into a relationship with a woman, the woman who is your intended, 
you better make sure you better make sure that number one that that is that is the goal that you're both dedicated to and that you look for that richness in your partner it's important for you to appreciate your partner for what they really are if not you're losing you're missing out on the whole thing if you think that you're the achiever and you're the goal pa you're the pacer you're setting the pace of success but you need somebody to cook your meals. You need somebody to change the linen. You need somebody to clean the house. So I want a sociable, warm social mate. That's not the hashkaf of Judaism. That's not the perspective of Judaism. The perspective of Judaism is that the throbbing life of Judaism goes through the vessels of what a woman is in Judaism. I'll stop here. The question was, if Sarah was presented with the, with the test of the Akedah, as opposed to Abraham, what would have been? What would have been? Would have Sarah been able to go through it? Since we are introducing this evening that Sarah was present in the performance of the Akedah, could she have accomplished it with, uh, by herself without Avram? I would answer it in the following way. I would say, first of all, the Medrash tells us, the Medrash suggests to us, that Avram did not tell Sarah about the Akedah beforehand because Avram feared that the motherly love, the instinctive motherly love, would be so, so great that Avram would have to contend yet with one more thing and that would be too much for him. The argument of Sarah, the pleading of Sarah, the emotions of Sarah not to go through with the Akedah. This is what Avram was concerned with. I think that that was Avram's perception up until the Akedah. But after having lived through the Akedah, Avram came to realize not that Sarah would have stood in the way of the Akedah, but that Sarah was the contribution that made the Akedah possible in the reality. <coughs> made the contribution possible in the reality. So my, question, my answer to you is that Avram's perception of Sarah could very well have been before the Akedah that Sarah couldn't have gone through. But I think that Avram recognized after the Akedah that the fact that he was able to accomplish it was because, not in spite of Sarah, but because of Sarah. It was because of Sarah. Excuse me? Yes. Yes. Now, let me explain something which I once explained before. Now, in the context of what we're talking about, it has even greater meaning and greater relevance. I just realized this. According to one interpretation, the negative inclination that informed Sarah the, of the Akedah wanted Sarah to die because if Sarah would die on the heels of finding out about the Akedah, Avram would regret the Akedah retroactively. So in other words, the Sutton still didn't give up. The Sutton tried to, the, the negative inclination tried to prevent Avram from going through, but after Avram accomplished, he wanted to at least try to undo it by Avram regretting it. So it says, Avram that Avram cried to Sarah, cried to Sarah, and the, the letter, one of the letters of the word and cried is small. The commentaries say, why? Avram controlled his crying. Avram controlled his crying. Why did he control his crying? 
because in the, in the passion of crying, he was suspicious of himself that maybe there would enter a little regret that he went through the Akedah, that he went through the binding of Isaac since it led up to Sarah's death. So therefore he disciplined his crying so that it shouldn't reach that point. That's a very, very interesting and a very revealing concept of how Judaism is a discipline in emotions. And it has its value. I'm thinking now to myself as, I'm, uh, as we're discussing this that maybe we can uh, um, uh, afford another interpretation of Ayyavi Avram Lispa The negative inclination, the negative inclination wanted to get Avram involved in, in, in an intensity of tears that the intensity of the tears would represent a regret of the binding of Isaac. It would represent a regret. Little did the negative inclination know that after the Akedah, the Akedah afforded Avram a greater appreciation. Avram didn't see the Akedah and Sarah as contradictions. The Akedah is going, is taking me in one direction and Sarah is taking me in the other. Well, which one, was, which, one is, which one is worth Which one is more valuable? Well, Sarah, I love Sarah. Sarah was my wife. Sarah is more valuable than the Akedah. The Satans envisioned that the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, is an emotional relationship that is in contradiction to, 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 to the presence of God within the relationship. So the negative inclination believed that I'll pin religiosity and spirituality between Avram and his relationship, and that way I'll get, I'll get spirituality out of here. Because there's a supremacy of love, the supremacy of emotion. Little, little did the Sutton understand that the Akeda and Sarah weren't in contradiction with each other, but that the, that the, the Akeda and Sarah were the natural result of each other. This is, Sarah created the Akeda. I have Sarah to thank for the Akeda. Sarah is not what I would have had if I wanted to thank. Sarah is what made me who I am today. Right? So Satan, you want me to cry that my tears should be tears of regret? My tears are tears of thanks for Sarah. Right, we'll